You know, the job of a Christian psychologist, uh, in my view, is to sort of take the things that God tells us about how he wants us to work, how humans work, uh, how he created us to function, and uh, sort of operationalize them, sort of put hands and feet on them, um, and also to take things we learn from, you know, common grace smarts. But our job is to sort of figure out, okay, rubber meets the road, these things that God talks about, say, with forgiveness. Okay, great, you do need to forgive. What does that look like and how do we make sense of it? What, does, what makes forgiveness so difficult? Our job is to sort of operationalize that. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do with you all here about marriage. What we're talking about here essentially is the heart. In other words, we're going to be working kind of inside out on your marriage, starting off with the basic things that the heart needs to be able to function. Now, one of the things that's neat is, as we as psychologists have learned more of what hearts really need to live well, they happen to parallel the kind of things God's been calling us to all along. Big surprise there, right? So as we're talking, you're hearing me talk psychology, but also God's biblical principles kind of in the same way, uh, because they are, of course, the same thing. All right, let's keep going with our um, eyes, our abilities. Third eye, imperfection. Dealing with the yuckiness in life. This is a tough one. How do I make sense of how painful life is? How do I make sense of how much I am not what I wish I was? Um, how do I make sense of how my, my spouse is not what I wish, I was, I wish they were? Um, by the way, this is the only one of the four that God did not create us to need to learn. If you think about it okay in other words in the garden of eden had things gone better <laughs> um adam and eve was still needed to learn and grow in the whole issue of intimacy and connection that's something humans need to develop in the ability to be good stewards and to be strong and to be submissive and the whole identity issue they would have needed to learn to manage their emotional world and their impulses if they had managed their sadness better they wouldn't have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we wouldn't be sitting here but one that we were not created to make sense of is pain and suffering and judgment and wrong and right. God wanted to protect us from that. Our hearts were designed to live in a garden in perfection. And one of the reasons that pain hurts us so badly and that we're so controlled by avoidance of it and one of the reasons that we're all so uh, surrounded by shame is because we're fish out of water. We weren't designed to have to make sense of suffering and pain. Our hearts don't know how. We weren't created to do it. So everybody struggles with this one. That's um, why everybody's ashamed to be exposed. We were all born under the law, and we're afraid of that. So bring this to your marriage, and you can see how much of your marriage is you being irritated that your spouse isn't X, Y, and Z. Think about it. You're constantly dealing with the sense of why didn't you? Notice your heart is basically dealing with what happened at the fall. I am now dealing with pain because of you. And so I'm going to be angry about it. I'm going to pout about it. I'm going to yell at you about it. I'm going to draw from you about it. Think how much of our lives is about I can't engage pain with you. So this is a toughie. Marriage is hard. Real life is hard. And we're not going to be able to make life work very well 
unless we develop the ability, we can learn this ability, unless we develop the ability to make sense of the fact that everything on this planet that's not a Facebook post is not perfect, okay? Your spouse is not going to be everything you dream, and we're not even going to talk about what a carnival cruise it is to live with you, all right? So there's pain and there's sorrow and there's loss. And paradoxically speaking, a gigantic amount of the marital struggle that we have is actually about the cockamamie ways that we respond to one another when there's pain and loss. Like what we talked about earlier, the blame marriage. Basically by becoming jerky blamers and by protesting. You know, I can't believe you, blah, blah, blah. You hear the protest? You hear how we usually talk? Now, what that does is it takes one marriage problem and turns it into two marriage problems. Now we have some pain and a difficulty or loss or suffering, and I'm being a jerk about it. Think happy thoughts, okay? So, for marriage to work, for life to work, for your job to work, for your trip to the grocery store tomorrow to work, we need to be taught and shown, as kids preferably, but it's not too late, how to make sense of failure and sorrow and disappointment and, lo- and loss and not lose our poise, okay? Now, as you can imagine, we're going to need to have some pretty strong heart kung fu going on inside of us in order to do that. Um, so, two abilities again. Can I forgive you? And can I forgive me? Can I forgive you? Can I make sense of, of uh, kind of reach a level of peace with the fact that the world has fallen and you're fallen and you let me down and I not live in a position of protest? Can I kind of forgive the universe for stinking? And the flip side, can I forgive myself? Can I take in grace? Can I have a category for um, I, I, it's safe to be fallen and I'm not afraid to disappoint you all the time, okay? So let's look at them. Forgiving them. To what degree do we have the ability to make sense of our spouse, the world, the fallenness not being what I want? Can I face the tension of that and stay grounded? Let me put a face on this. Um, I had no idea I was going to like being a granddaddy as much as I like being a granddaddy. It's really surprised me. I told Norma, I said, it's like dating. You know, you take them to dinner, you take them out dancing, and you send them home. I mean, it's great, you know. So there was a season a little while back where I hadn't seen my, back then only had one grandson, and he's the bomb. And I hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks, you know, and they changed so fast. And I was bemoaning this to Norma on a Monday night. And so she said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm keeping him to Tuesday afternoon here at the house. He'll be here till, till 6.15 or something like that. And I said, awesome. So um, I start you know, I start going through my day at work and it gets to be lunchtime on Tuesday. Now, one of the things about being a psychologist is you can't get behind. You got to see your client and you have your little break and you see the next client because once you start getting behind, you'll just get further and further behind till you're getting home an hour late. Well, I was running that place like a railroad station. I'm like, your time's up, out, you know, get another cup of coffee. I'm in, you know, and I'm like 50 minutes, ding, go, you know, and I was just moving them in and out. Because at 10 till 5, I was going to be in the car to be home because she was going to have him at the house. And so I'm blowing by my office manager. It's like, there's a phone message. I'm like, no, I can't see it. And I'm running. And I get in the car. And I'm, and I'm pulling out of the park lot and headed home. And I call Norma. And I'm like, okay, I'm on my way. And she says, 
oh, I changed my mind. I'm not keeping him today. You feel that? You do, don't you? That's why I told it. What do you want to say to her? You want to call her? I've resolved this, though. That's what marriage feels like. Right there. Right? I mean, like, what do you want to say? What do you have inside not to, to, to be able to not say, what do you mean you changed your mind? Do you not realize I ran this whole day? That's what drives us, right? Can I forgive you means how are we doing growing in that ability to be able to suffer what essentially, let's boil it down. Norma's a person, she changed her plans. I don't know what the deal is. What's the, the linchpin of that issue? Loss. I did not want to face loss, and so I would rather take it out on her. It feels so much better to be mean than to be sad. I'm going to talk about that again in a second. Now, to balance the story on Norma, um, we had just gotten married first week back from our honeymoon. We lived in this little turn-of-the-century creaky wooden-floored duplex in the Bellhaven area of Jackson. And we were upstairs getting ready for bed, and suddenly you hear this kind of boom, crack noise downstairs. And we both look at each other in our pajamas. And she goes, what was that? She looks at me. She looks at her Captain America. What was that? And I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, could be, I don't know, just go down there and look. And I'm like, I'm not going down there and looking. <laughs> like, it could be somebody who's broken in the house. It could hurt me. And she said, well, my daddy would have gone and looked. I'm like, let's call him. I'll call him. All right, that's what marriage feels like too, just to be fair. Okay, Norma? All right. How about something darker? I was working with a couple, and uh, she has since died. But they began seeing me when she had a very, very serious cancer diagnosis. And the pain and the agony of that process made them turn against each other. They were hurting so badly that they, they were meaner to each other. And a lot of what we worked with was engaging sorrow and the, and the agony together somehow rather than it turning into anger, right? How do we recover from that? I'm going to touch on it some. What it means to grow here is a whole conference. Um, and I've got a conference on it. I think I wrote most of that conference here with you guys once. Um, but growing here, I think, is a holy process. Number one, we grow here when we learn to make sense of what it means to grieve and feel sadness. I want to talk a little about this, and we can talk more about it because it's a whole talk. Sadness is one of the most powerful and holy emotions that we can feel. Next to gratitude, it is one of the holiest emotions that there is. One of the ways I say it is that the unusual thing about sadness is that sadness is what I call a progressive emotion. It's a transitional emotion. And I don't really understand that. And I should because it's my job. But I think it's a mystery and I think it's a gift. But you can be angry forever. And you can be anxious forever. And you can be depressed forever. But if you feel sad, 
If I feel sad about my loss that I didn't get to see my grandson, instead of being mean about it, you will move. Something about sadness transitions us. Something about sadness moves us from point A to point B. I was talking to Becca Heck today about my brother's death. Y'all remember my brother died in 1980, 1990, uh, when he was 27. I was 30. And um, if this was 30 years ago, I couldn't talk to you about him, but I can now. Why? Do I love him less? Do I miss him less? No. I did a lot of grieving. Sadness moves us from one place to another where the loss no longer has that toxin it used to have. It's a sweeter, softer more loving thing. Um, And one of the secrets of the universe to making sense of the pain in our life and in our marriages is learning what it means to be able to be sad rather than live in angry protest. Why aren't you more so-and-so? One of my clients told me the other day that um, he had come home from work and wanted to talk to his wife about how hard his day had been and she just blew him off. And he said, I thought about the things you told me, and instead of getting angry at her, I sat there and just felt really sad because I wanted to talk to her. And I said, that is holy, man. And that builds grounding and strength in him, and it doesn't hurt her. This is why sadness is talked, so much, uh, talked about so much in Scripture. Um, the Bible talks so much about blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they can be comforted. That's not a poetic statement. Comfort only comes when we mourn. That psalm, uh, he who goes forth scattering seeds of grief will come back leaping, carrying sheaves of joy. I think it's 95, but I'm not sure. Um, if, you, if you want to conquer sin in your life, learn to be sad. Sin says, I want to take this. The only way you're ever going to not take is by learning to be sad. I can't have that. What is lust? I want to take that. What are you going to feel if you don't have it? Sad. And then once you feel sad for a while, you will heal. And the sadness will stop tearing at you. Um, if you live in sadness, you will live in the most reality. The most holy person ever was called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is something we don't look at enough. Learning to be in a holy way sad is such an incredibly powerful part of your sanctification. And it's an incredibly important part of your marriage. I want you to be sad together. Norman doesn't like it when I say this, but I tell people all the time that every marriage, the best of marriages, are an exercise in disappointment. She goes, you tell people that publicly? You know? <laughs> like, yeah, but you're more disappointed in me than I am in you. I mean, you have a right to be. I want it to be something to say, that made me really sad when you did that. And you go, I totally get it. Of course that made you sad. I let you down. I hurt you. Be sad. I'll be sad too. That is your friend. I promise you. Spiritually speaking, this is holy ground. We grow here when we make sense of what it means to be grounded in love. In other words, one of the cures to pain is if I'm connected to you and loved, love and connection with people who care about us is like this anesthesia to our pain. 
If you want to make sense of dealing with loss and pain in the world and suffering, bring it to people who love you. I told the story last night to um, the, the group leaders and the elders as we were talking about building community. Um, but my little grandson, who's three weeks old now, spent the last week in the hospital. He couldn't hold down food, and it was really scary. And it was like I was working all day, and then we'd be at the hospital, and it was terrifying. He had the drip in his arm, and it was, uh, it was horrible. And I had this really cool office manager, and I'm just trying to get through the week and see my clients and get ready to come here. And she just stopped me on Wednesday, and she said, stop. I'm like, what? She goes, I need to pray for you about what's happening with Shaw in the hospital. And she stopped me. She made me stop. And she, um, she said, I want to pray for you about that. And we bowed our heads standing there in the hall at the office. And she prays this prayer of loving kindness to me and my family and what we're going through. And when she said I'm in, I looked up at her and I just had these tears streaming. It was a turning point for me. I started calling my friends and saying, I need you guys with me. I needed love to make sense of the pain. If you're making sense of loss and sorrow and pain in your life and you want to develop this I, it needs to be with other people. We'll talk more about that later on tonight. But love and connection is the anesthesia for pain. As I told them last night, pain alone is doubled. Pain with is halved. Okay, finally, we grow here. If you live in sadness and you live in love, you're going to develop a sense of self, man. In other words, a sense of you. You're bigger than that traffic jam. One of the things I asked myself when Norma decided to not have the baby at home was I said, John, are you this small? Are you big enough to deal with a great disappointment that cost you a lot of difficulty in your day? and not be small? Can you be powerful? Is this bigger than you? In other words, a sense of self that says, I'm more than this traffic jam, or more than not getting to see the grandbaby. We build an ability to deal with pain when we develop more of that second eye identity. Like I say, this is a whole conference. We can talk more about it in Q&A if you want. But we metabolize pain and loss, forgive you, forgive the world, forgive the fallenness, when we have something in us that is more grounded in something bigger than events. Events do not define me. This so applies, by the way, to the issue of forgiving of an injury, um, a woefully underdeveloped theme, though it's vitally important in our faith. We can talk about that too if you want. So, can I forgive you? Do we have that ability? Most of us don't. <laughs> All right, secondly, can I forgive myself? Can I take in grace? This is for people who live in that guilty perfectionistic rat race, you know, or the Christian perfectionistic rat race. These are the people who can't have anybody over their house unless it's decorated like, like you're going to have a garden and gun photo shoot or something, you know. Um, or I, I, I kind of held prisoner in my marriage because I'm afraid of disappointing my spouse, which I just see all the time. I don't want you to really know me. John's talking about emotional connection and all that, but I'm too ashamed of that. You would think I'm worse than everybody else. In other words, this is, this, this is that, that prison of living under shame. So what I do with my own fallenness and my own imperfection. In other words, we need to have, be, be, have be, been given and developed the ability, again, this is an ability, 
to take in grace and feel forgiven for good enough to be good enough. A big theme in my book, y'all used to hear me talk about it all the time, is being a good enough parent. Now, again, the only place we learn this kind of grace in our guts is in relationship. In other words, at some point in my life, I need to have the experience of someone seeing me like real me, warts and all me, and their eyes don't fall. And they say, you know what, I want you, real you, screwed up you, ugly you. Guess what, I'm a real mess too. It'll be my turn in a minute. I'm a different kind of mess, but same mess, okay? And when, when that happens experientially, love starts to conquer the fall, okay? Um, you know that phenomenon, I talked to him about it last night, uh, it's the phenomenon that actually got me into psychology in the first place. I call it the head-heart gap. You know what I mean when I say it. I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. I know I shouldn't be anxious, but I'm still anxious. I know God's in control of everything, but I still wake up like, well, uh, you know, antsy and afraid. That's the head-heart gap. Why does my heart not feel what my head knows? Well, that got me into psychology to try to figure that out. And it took me like 10 years to figure out the answer. And I'm going to tell you what it is. <laughs> For crying out loud. You're just sitting there. And I'm going to tell you. It's kind of a riff off if you think about it. Maybe I won't tell you. <laughs> so that guy who says, I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. What I often say to him is, well, let me ask you a question then. Have you ever really hurt somebody or really screwed up or really had nasty sin, like, you know, gnarly, ugly sin? And have you ever brought that to somebody? Or maybe you hurt them and you see in their eyes, you look in their eyes and you can see the pain. You hurt them. They're hurting. And you say, I hurt you. And I ask your forgiveness, which I have no right to ask for. And have you ever had that person look at you and say, yeah, you really did hurt me. And you know what? I do forgive you. I do. Or I, I, I hear your sin. And I know you feel like you're the nastiest person in the world. And I'll never think the same about you again. But I don't think that. If you knew my heart, you'd be afraid to tell me anything. Have you ever had that experience? And to the last, those people go, no way, man. Never had anybody treat me like that. As in our house growing up. Man, you messed up, and it was the end of the day. You know, mom went nuts, and everybody's under the couch, you know. That's what we learned. So I'm wondering, how do you learn to feel forgiven if you've never experienced it? That's what changes the heart, is I learn head things through books and conferences and reading and all that. But what I learned, that gut sense of forgiveness, how do I learn to take in grace that it's safe to be fallen me? I have to have relationships in which I'm bringing screwed up me and they don't run off screaming. I mean, so I'm telling you the story about my baby in the hospital a minute ago, and I just started crying, right? Now, all of your faces were so warm toward me, that just clicked another little notch in my heart going, you know what, John, it's okay to be you, broken, scared, hurting you. Y'all just gave me that. It's happening all around. Do we have people, do we look for people, or are we taking that kind of risk to say, this is me? We're going to talk in a minute about what that looks like culturally within the church. Notice a theme is starting to develop here. 
for marriage to work, we need to have abilities. All of us are lacking some of them, but we can grow. And the place that we grow is going to be in relationship. You see this pyramid I'm building here? Now, our growth in learning to be able to take in grace and live outside of shame and forgive me is vital. Only then, let's get back to our marriage conference. If I'm living experiencing grace, can I bring that back to my marriage? Only then can I come to that spouse who's being jerky and let them down and not be afraid. Only then can I see that my spouse is angry at me for setting a limit and I don't have to go make it all better. One day I was extra picky on Norma. It's like everything she did I picked on. I'm like, did you, did you not get grapes at the grocery store like I asked? I mean, I was that guy all day, all right? <laughs> and so at one point I said, um, uh, the, 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 I got a load of wash to put in the dryer, and the dryer's still full of wet clothes. I mean, did you not cut it on? And she stopped me, and she said, no, I did not cut it on. And I made a mistake, and I will make many, many more, John. And I'm like, oh, wow. And she had this poise in her to be bad. I made her bad, and she sat with the poise and put a limit on me. And basically said, I'm not afraid of you and your scolding. I'm going to make mistakes and I need you to kind of get used to it. She was doing this stuff, man. All right? (laughs) I told you I'm a jerky person and I need this. You know a little saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Well, I say we just let mama be unhappy some. Okay? Might help her grow. Okay? Ain't that what the Bible says? You grow when you're unhappy. Let's let mama be unhappy. Otherwise, you are a slave, and there are a lot of people in your life who are going to be just hunky-dory with that. But you run that forward in your marriage with these super good selfless types who are always trying to keep everybody happy. See this all the time. Ultimately, the little super good keep everybody happy, don't upset your husband or wife types, ultimately get sick of being little or Mr. or Miss good and perfect selfless, and they snap. And they get depressed or they leave or they have an affair. And we go, oh my gosh, why are so many marriages failing? Well, one of the reasons that marriages are failing is because 25 years ago, little miscompliant didn't push back on the jerk and say, hey, you can have your tantrum slick, but I'm getting out of your blast radius and my answer is still no. Okay? That's a marriage saver right there. Okay? So get it, make, having these abilities makes marriage possible. Lacking these abilities and it's hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you, okay? This isn't just about learning to communicate better. That's what I meant when I said this is going to be like your usual marriage conference. All right. Now, if I didn't manage to get you with the first three, which I doubt, I'm going to get you with this one, the third eye, the fourth eye. If any one of you still out there not humble yet, not willing to say, yeah, I need to grow some myself. It's not just her fault. I'm going to get you on this one because this one, this one's the Cuban baby. This one's the Cahiba. It's the Monte Cristo. None of us can do this one. Impulse control. Emotional management. Can I manage my emotional world? Here's the bottom line. If you want to understand how humans act and why we make choices, you got to understand the amount of power 
that emotion has in the lives of human beings. And once you start paying attention, you start to realize that a ton of our life and our choices, and for heaven's sake, our marriage is driven by emotional reactivity. Think about it. Our culture is driven by this, the stock market, okay? Economic indicators, my hind leg. The stock market is driven by emotion, fear or greed. Pick which one it is, okay? At least they have the integrity to call it market sentiment. I'm like, thank you. It is. It's a sentiment. Uh, Both sides of the political climate, whether it's the people who are, you know, constantly offended by insensitivity or walking out on the speaker or Trump's latest tweet, we're about 13 years old culturally, okay? Our culture is junior high. (laughs) That's where we are in terms of our ability to manage our emotional reactivity. Us individually, um, why can't you stay on a diet? Because you say, man, these pants are tight and the holidays, you know, left a mark and I got to be on a diet and I got to watch what I eat and then after the thing here tonight your friends go hey come on we're going down to the grove and all of us are getting a burger and fries how about you and you start thinking I think they have a good grilled chicken salad at the grove but then they start bringing out sweet potato fries now what's happening inside of you is you're feeling an emotion deprivation loss remember loss you don't want to feel loss and you're like, ah, bring me a beer too, you know, and you're, you're gone. <laughs> it's emotion, okay? Now, of course, this is a constant theme in marriages, emotional reactivity. Here is the question that impulse control asks. Can I have an emotion and think about it and decide what to do as opposed to just reacting? In other words, part number one, can I think? And flip side, can I let my emotions be part of the marriage? Can I feel? This is kind of like let you in. Can I let my heart be part of the world? So two questions. Can I think and not just react? Can I feel and not be detached? Have you developed these abilities? I haven't. (laughs) Um, Number one, can I think? Here's the deal. We begin our lives as children, okay? And children are concrete thinkers, that's why Sesame Street doesn't talk about the concept of threeness. It talks about one, two, three, cookie. Okay, children are concrete thinkers. Now, they're also concrete feelers. Like when you, when, when you refuse to get them that bubblicious at the checkout counter, little Johnny doesn't go, Mother, I am so disappointed. I feel so much sadness now that you didn't get... No, they do their feelings. They're concrete feelers. They, ah, they throw a tantrum. They're doing what they feel. You push a kid on the playground, he's either going to run away or he's going to punch you back. They do their feelings. Now, somewhere between then and adulthood, we grow the ability, somewhat, to where some guy cuts us off on the freeway and we go, ah, what an idiot. I would love to run into the back of that guy and teach him a lesson. And we don't. (laughs) Hopefully, okay? We don't, right? (laughs) need a little more enthusiasm than that or I'm not driving tomorrow. Say, look, this is Atlanta, man. I'm going to run in the back of you. All right, now what happened in those intervening years? Well, God made us to where we need to have the ability, if we're going to do life well and serve him well and obey well, this is huge in obedience, making sense of obedience 
happens in this spot in a huge way. We need to be taught the ability to have our emotions and look at them and not necessarily let them define our behavior. Or as we used to say to our kids, you can be angry, but you can't hit your sister. Or as God says, you can be angry, but sin not, okay? Now, as you can imagine, this is a huge dynamic in marriage. Think about it with me here, guys. Your wife says, um, honey, honey, turn right up here. And we say stuff like, come on, I know how to drive. And she's like, whoa, you know, sun's going down, big guy. Sun's going down, you know. All right, what just happened to a big guy, okay? Well, if you're like most men, what you felt was a feeling, a feeling that is implied by your wife's assistance, a feeling that implies that she thinks you're too stupid to know how to get here and, 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 and you need help, poor little fella, okay? So, man, we're going to push back on that. It's like, my forefathers crossed the Alleghenies. I don't need your help getting down La Vista, I know how to drive, woman. But instead of thinking, oh, wow, that totally hooked me. Notice my frontal lobes just showed up. Huh, wonder what that hooked. Norma and I were watching the U.S. Open this summer, and the camera flashes to Meghan Markle in the crowd, you know. And Norma says to me, that's Meghan Markle. She married Prince Harry. She's the Duchess of Sussex. And so, you know my kind heart by now. I said, I thank you for telling me that. Since I have been off-world recently, and my starship has just recently come back to Earth, the home planet, I didn't know who Meghan Markle was. Norma's just like, yeah. <laughs> so what happened there? I felt insulted. I don't know who Meghan Markle is, okay? But instead of thinking about the fact that I'm feeling this, I took it out on her, okay? This is the fourth eye. We're going to talk about it a lot tomorrow, mostly regarding conflict. But can I say, I'm kind of scared about how we're spending money. Instead of like, come on, what are you doing? You think I'm made of money? You hear the difference? Can I have a feeling and talk about it rather than doing it, okay? Can I say... Um, it kind of hurt me that you didn't defend me with your parents. Instead of like, why don't you just go live with your mommy? You love her so much. You know, that's what we do, right? But what most of us do is instead of seeing the feeling, and a lot of times that's the problem. Most of us don't know that what's happening here is that we are having a feeling, okay? Anyway, we don't have the feeling back up and go, wow, who put a nickel in me? What is the deal? What is going on? What do I need here? We just react. I'm so sick of, sick of your stupidity. Okay? So the ability to think and not react. This is a hallmark of adulthood in my opinion. Um, we'll talk about this more tomorrow with conflict. But um, I think I used to talk to you all about this. Remember, basic principle, I think conflict with your spouse should be golf, not tennis. Okay, our natural inclination is your spouse says something to you or does something, and we're like, oh yeah, and we're just top spin forehand back at you. I want you to slow it down. We're going to learn to think here. This is golf, not tennis. See how the green breaks. <laughs> slow it down. 
I'm not sure how to make my shot. What should I do with all these feelings I'm feeling? Ask your caddy, okay? <laughs> there really is no rush. Unfortunately, she's not going anywhere, okay? <laughs> so you got plenty of time. Plan your shot. How do I want to respond to this? Hmm. Okay? So I want you to slow it down. I want you to learn to think and not react. Put that on your to-do list if you can't do it. I want you to be cool like two little Fonzies. Okay? And what's Fonzie like? Fonzie's cool. Correctamundo. Uh, movie reference? Good. Check out the big brain on Brett. Excellent. <laughs> There you go. Every good Christian marriage conference needs to have at least one Pulp Fiction reference in it. Don't you agree? (laughs) Um, Anyway, emotional consciousness. Because if you can't think and back up and decide what to do with your feelings, your feelings will by default make those decisions for you. And nine times out of ten, those decisions will be, how shall I say it, unfortunate ones. Okay? So can I think? All right, other side of this, can I feel? Um, I'm going to skim this a little bit because it's, what, it's so similar to let you in. Uh, but a lot of people, you just can't reach them. They don't bring their emotion to the party at all. They're sort of, you know, John Wayne, Mr. Spock. And that's cool in all the lone gunslinger bit. But as we said, the problem with that is if you're not bringing your heart to other people, they will miss you and not be connected to you, and God will feel like some sort of concept rather than a relationship. And your spouse is going to feel like that you're detached from them, and they'll probably want to talk about it. And that's not a marriage problem. That's a software problem. What we're talking about tonight is human software. And we could, this could be a, a talk on you know, corporate team building, and the same principles would apply. These are the software that you are bringing to your life much less your marriage. Now, with the uh, can, I, can I let myself feel, you can grow here. I have a guy, I had a, a couple a while back, and the guy was just very digital, very left brain. But he started learning that he was. He didn't know a feeling from a hole in the ground. And he was trying to learn how to feel and how to make sense of that. So um, he, he came in one day, and, and he, he and his wife, and he said, I, I, I got her a card because y'all have been teaching me so much about like feelings and things. And, and, he, and he hands it to her in front of me in the session. And the card says, this is just a little card to let you know how I feel. And she opens it up and it says, I feel fine. <laughs> All right, so you're done. Those, in my opinion, are the basic building blocks for a relationship. And you can see how much they parallel the image of God and spirituality. The things that we're talking about here that make life work and relationships work are so much the things he calls us to. Love, uh, stewardship, uh, steadfastness, forgiveness, humility, uh, management of my own impulses uh, to not just take what I want in disobedience over and over and over again what we're doing here is trying to translate what he calls us to into something characterological where we can grow. And life is going to work well to the degree that we have them, and you will serve God well to the degree that you have them. A lot of the sin that you have in your life is in a lot of ways due to lacking some of these, 
It's funny, as you develop some of these missing spots, you see people handle sin very differently. And marriage and dating works well to the degree that we have them. Um, now, as I said, I want you to use these to diagnose your marriage. As you s- sat here tonight, you probably saw one or two of these that you were not so good at. The advanced students saw four that they were not so good at, okay? Either way, you're normal. Now, bring those into your marriage, and here's my point again tonight. The major reason that people have a bad marriage is not because they have a bad marriage. It's because they're missing some pieces, and we all are. Let's be friends about it, okay? In other words, I don't care how hard a team works. If the players are lousy athletes, they're going to lose. Your marriage will be as strong as its players are. Now, I want you to use these to catalog your blind spots. Great topic for date night, okay? That's why I wrote them all out on the outline for you to have. I want you to be reflecting and going, where is it that I'm missing? I'm kind of more one of these, you're one of those. How can we be growing there? But as friends, not enemies, not I'm so sick and tired of you doing so-and-so, I want to back out and go, I wonder what we're missing. I want to put you on the same team. Because most marriages don't get better because they don't ever talk about the problem. They just live in blame, okay? I want you saying, you know, I'm not that good at that can I be me thing. I'm scared to be me. You know, I'm scared at work even. I'm scared with you. I need to grow there. And I want to be able to say, I'm not good at that forgiving myself thing. I think that's why I act like a maniac when you point out my flaws. Because I hear that and immediately react. That's a problem. We need to work on that. I want to grow there. But it's friends, not enemies, not that blame marriage, okay? And I want you to have that orientation in your marriages and in your lives and in your dating and in your heart. Because if you've been paying attention, you've heard something in the background of everything I've been saying. One last ability that's going to supersede every other one, whether we're talking about marriage or talking about faith. And that is the character ability, the heart ability to live out of a position of humility and repentance. You keep hearing me imply it with everything I've said tonight. In other words, can I say, do I have the ability and the humility to say, I am broken and need help too? Or do I live in the, our marriage stinks because of you. Do I have to live there? Thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men, namely him, my husband. Are we still in that position? Or can I say, I want to get out of the bad guy, who's the bad guy position, and say, I'm, I'm pretty bad and need forgiveness and I need growth. You want to join me? Guys, I think this is a huge piece of what uh, husband leadership is. Husband leadership is not like, eh, we can't agree on where to get the, the drapes, so I'm the husband, so I get to make the call. You know, that's not husband leadership. Husband leadership is, you know that stuff Cox was talking about? That scares me to death. But I want to walk it. You want to walk with me? I'm going to Golgotha. You want to go with me? Let's die to some stuff and grow. That's what husband leadership means. I want you men especially to be mastering this kind of things. But that position of I can be humble, I can say I need help, just exactly like that's the beginning point of our faith It is the beginning point of a powerful, godly marriage. Think about it. This is funny. You ready? We run to the altar to become Christians in our faith. We hurry to God. Lord, I am bad. 
I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. And then we get married, and we're like, no way, I'm not the bad guy. Feel the irony? Can we have the same humility in our marriage that we have in the gospel? Now, those of you who are married to a jerky, unrepentant person, the rules are going to change a little bit there. Because a jerky, unrepentant person who wants to hurt you is going to go, great, you are the bad one. Thanks for agreeing to it. Now do what I say. And there's, we'll talk more tomorrow about dealing with them. But like I said tonight, I'm assuming that you are both repentant. Anyway, singles often hear me talk about these kind of things, and they'll go, great, Dr. Cox. How am I ever going to find anybody who has all of these amazing four abilities? I'll never get married. And I'm like, well, you know, you got me there. There's only one, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, all right? So, you, you know. But if you can't find it, that, find someone who has just one ability, this last one. Find him. The ability to be humble and repentant. And maybe he's a Neanderthal emotionally, but he knows he's a Neanderthal. <laughs> that Neanderthal can grow, okay? Marry that Neanderthal, all right? So if you can do humble, then I can take you to school, and so can the Holy Spirit, and so can this body of people. But if you're not open, and all this is psychobabble, and other people are the bad one, and you're the good one, as Jesus said, really enjoy that feeling, because that's as good as it gets. That's your reward in full. You're not going anywhere, all right? And remember, if your spouse is unrepentant, the baby mobile, your growth there will shift things. We'll talk more about that. Now, I'm going to touch on this, and I want to, I want to um, sketch this. And to the degree that y'all want to talk about it more, we can talk about it more. But I want to touch a little bit on, so how do we grow here? Great, John. You're talking about all these places that we're not whole. You're wishing us luck. How do we grow? This is a whole nother conference. Remember growing hearts we used to do here in the old days? We talked about this. You ought to be able to answer some of my questions here. It's not going to come as any surprise to you to know that I believe. Let me back up. I came yesterday, not today. I came yesterday because your pastors and your elders, your session and your group leader people are wanting to make sense of what it looks like to have a church in which the people are learning and giving and sharing the kind of connection I've been telling you about is the only place we grow. So usually I start this part of my talk from scratch, but I'm starting it on the shoulders of giants, of people who are already plotting this in the background. It will not come as any surprise to you that, uh, like I said, the only thing that heals the head-heart gap, the only place I learned the ability to have intimacy, the only place I learned to have that it's safe to be me, that I can be strong, that I can say no. The only place I learned that I can be fallen and screwed up and you still love me and I don't need to be afraid of shame. The only place I learned to manage my impulses is in relationships. God made us that way. And the only place we learned it at the heart level is when those parts of me are known. Here's a very sad truth that I wish wasn't true, but I didn't make it up and I don't get to make up these kind of things. But if there are stuck places in your life where you cannot grow and no one else knows about them, you won't grow. 
God made us to where the only way that we ever really grow at the heart level is to be able to bring those incomplete parts into relationship and have them known. And something about that, I don't even know how it works. It's the reason therapy works. I don't know how it works. But something about being known by other people is what helps us heal and grow there. God created us to develop in the context of relationship. That's why he gave us parents. That's why he gave us each other, the body of Christ, what I call the second family. What I heard this black preacher not long ago, he said, the church is your God family. I'm like, yeah. Now, God knows that we have not completed all of our development in childhood, that we all have these blind spots that we've been talking about. And he knows that the only place that I'm ever going to really get those things developed is in relationship. So what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to give us other relationships. And he does. The body of Christ. Now, here's the problem. Our culture's kind of lost this. In other words, um, about the time of the Industrial Revolution, our culture kind of fragmented to where we don't share our hearts anymore. So people live very much in isolation, which is why we had to invent things like therapy. Um, and that's fine and all, but I think what God calls us to do, and, and, and your leadership is doing this, which is so exciting, and as I told several of them, if any place can pull this off, in town can, and that is, let's develop a culture in which we learn that it's safe. I told them last night, the enemy to us being connected and knowing one another is that we don't feel safe. They're wanting to build a culture that is safe, to where if you share your heart to someone it's not going to be spread around. You're not going to get guilt tripped. You're not going to get Bible versed. Where your heart, where you can say, well, I can say to my guys, uh, you know what? My wife is really pushy. And if she's not happy with me, she's going to make me pay. And I'm frankly too scared to stand up to her, guys. And Cox is talking about, can I be me? I can't be me with my wife. I need to grow there. And have those guys start talking with you about that. You will grow. Okay? So bottom line of this is we are asking a question of if you want to grow in your marriage, the question is not, you know, go read the next marriage book. The question is how do I develop these kind of relationships? How do we find and become people who are safe and keep, fellow, keep um, confidence and aren't truthers and advisors and are life-giving people? How do we become those people? And what happens is when we have that kind of environment, it might just start with a friend. Or it might start with a small group you're in. And your small group says, hey, we're studying Philippians. That's great. But you want to start talking about what Philippians means to our hearts? And you start opening one another and being together. And what you find is that these four eyes will start to develop more in you. All right? Then what happens is you both are growing and you bring that back to your marriage and I see marriages get better. You want to grow in your marriage, let's start thinking, where, where are my blind spots? Let's help each other. Let's get out of the condemnation. Let's start looking at what it means to grow there. And you are blessed to be amongst the people who are very interested in what that looks like. Most churches I go to are like, great, cool, Cox, what do we do? How do we start? You guys are already ahead of the game. So there's a lot of opportunity for you there. Let's stop there. And uh, just do questions. Yeah, we got a ton of time. We've got two mics somewhere. With this size crowd, I would like to give you a mic if you have a question, if you're okay with that.
and I'll check my um, text, see if, if y'all have texted me anything. Who's got a question? Yeah, Mike. Um, you, go ahead. Don? Don. Yep, go ahead. Thank you, sir. Um, you, you've been talking a, a lot about how this also affects other parts of our lives. Yes. Our work. Yes. And I would be humbly wanting to know how that uh, affects work. Maybe we could address that. For a little like bit. how the four eyes might Correct. help address work? Correct. That's good. Right, because Flatguard was asking how they apply to his golf game. So I guess you're even ahead of that. So, um, Let's pick a job, somebody. A firefighter? <laughs> okay. Pick another job. <laughs> sales. I'll do, I'll do sales. I kind of don't know what firefighters do. It's like, you know, it's a lot of emotional dynamics here. I don't know. Um, sales. Um, I am afraid to be intimate. I'm afraid to be close. I'm afraid to be connected. Um, and so... Uh, I tend to be withdrawn. I am kind of keep to myself. Um, I feel shy. I have a real trouble with the, can I um, keep you in? Can I trust love? I'm kind of always afraid and insecure. These people like me, or they don't want me, and they turn me down for sale, and I feel like I'll never be a good salesperson, okay? Um, identity, can I be me? I need to be able to say, um, I believe in this product, and you might not, but I do. Let me tell you. See, there's this kind of, there's mojo there. Um, imperfection. I really dropped the ball on that sale. Really messed it up. I just want to go home. I'm no good at this. I want to quit. Can I manage that? Um, impulse control. Hmm. <clears throat> impulse control... Let me tell you where, like, I have trouble with impulse control in my work, and I can try to maybe go over to sales. Um, a lot of times, um, it is part of therapy for clients to get mad at me, and I'll be, like, working my heart out to try to give to them, and it won't be enough or something like that, and they mouth back at me about it, and that's part of their therapy. They need somebody who can contain their anger, but I have to sit on my emotional impulse control to not go, fine then, you know? <laughs> All right? So I think in a sales situation, you'd have that same sort of sense of like, well, then never mind. Okay? Um, how about parenting? That's a great one. Um, intimacy. Can I connect with my kids? Can I be close to my kids? 
Um, can I manage it when they become teenagers and don't want to be close to me? Can I keep them in? Can I have a sense of me and know what I believe and teach that to my kids? Can I have room for my kids to start having an identity of their own? I don't like that. And look for times, you know, especially with toddlers and with teenagers where they can say no. Um, imperfection. Uh, the, the title of my book is Setting Parents Free because everywhere I go and speak about parenting, parents live under this terrified fear of I'm going to screw up my kids. Okay, so I thought, ooh, I mean, parents need data about how to raise their kids, but mostly they need to grace. So the subtitle is how to give your kids what they need and where to run when you drop the ball. Okay, in other words, it's a book about grace. It's a book like the Bible. Here's what you're supposed to do, and here's where to run when you screw it up. Okay, so that's a fundamental part of parenting. Impulse control, obviously. I'm going to resist the inclination to scream at those rotten kids. Okay, and we teach our kids impulse control by love and limits. I'm going to hear your anger, but you can't call me names or you're going to time out. And we teach them you can have a feeling but not act on it. Those some examples? Okay, good. Thank you. I'm pretty good at projecting. I almost was like, you don't have to bring me the microphone. Um, so uh, I am a perpetual perfectionist. I am extremely passive. And um, I want to be nice to everyone. Um, and people automatically tell you, like, you have to assert yourself. Like, that's super easy for someone who's never done it. What are small ways that you can start to assert yourself? Um, as opposed to like allowing yourself to get to the point where you just snap and you just can't take it anymore. Ooh, that's good. Did y'all hear her? Okay. Okay, good. Um, let me ask the question a little bit different way instead of what are some ways to assert yourself. A lot of what my model is here for marriage or for life sort of goes from the inside out, from my heart out to my behavior. Now, the question I would want to ask is, and, and like, um, uh, right now in my life, I have very little anxiety when I speak in front of people. But there was a time in my life where I had more anxiety. In other words, I was more of a perfectionist. And I started asking people who I knew, knew me and loved me and trusted me, I wonder what it is about me that feels like I need to do such a good job when I'm speaking that I feel anxious. And I had to learn some things about myself. I learned some things about my own sense of shame or my own sense of being afraid people won't like me. And I looked at some of the reasons that were motivating my fear of putting myself out there. And as I made more sense of those kind of things and lived more out of a position of, I'm kind of loved and I feel that inside and maybe you guys will love me too, but if you don't, I already brought a sack lunch of love, so I'm going to be okay. And as I answered those questions, I wasn't as needy of my groups. So I kind of had to answer some of my own stuff. So if I'm a professional perfectionist, which I like, does it pay well? Oh. Um, no, no, it doesn't. Um, a, a perfectionist is saying, for some reason I haven't quite put my finger on yet, um, badness spoils everything. Now, what I need to figure out is why is that so scary? Why is that so dangerous? So find people who know you, find people who love you, and start getting curious together. Do a little detective work. I wonder what it is that's driving that for me. If you can make sense of that, it'll sort of cut the tree off at the roots. That's how I would start. Otherwise, we're telling you how to go act more 
um, assertive and we're missing a, maybe a little heart inside of you that's scared and I want to take care of her. She's the most important part of you. Now, once she feels free and she's like, la, look at me, I'm not perfect and I'm still loved, then, then you're not going to have to worry about all the rest. That's a sweet, beautiful question. And you asked it perfectly. <laughs> I like the way you asked it. Yes, sir. This one isn't acting like it's on. Hello? I mean, I can project too. Project, baby. I'm going to stand near you so it gets on the recording. Hello? Are we on? Can y'all hear me back there? Nope. Okay. Check, check. Go for it. All right. So, um, as somebody who is on that sort of, uh, what's the word you use? I I don't like the word bully, but it's sort of more of that aggressive kind of side of the scale that, yeah, right. of the partnership. Aggressive is a good one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not passive aggressive. I tell my wife I'm aggressive aggressive. Oh, well, yeah, I'm passive, on, honest about passive it. Passive isn't right. thing about me. Yeah, I'm so aggressive aggressive. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I am too. As, as somebody who is on that kind of aggressive scale, what are some, uh, some I guess, some ways and some techniques that, um, <clears throat> you know, dealing with a partner who's a little more passive in some of their things, how yeah. can I sort of temper my approach to, um, uh, I guess, to bring up those things that aren't getting done that need to get done but cause a fight the second that you mention it. Oh, okay. Let me see if I got this right. Um, You can tend to come across in a way that can feel um, a little uh, intense. And your wife... I mean, that's a nice way of saying it. I'm I'm, I'm a nice guy. Um, And your wife gets triggered by that. And sort of like pushes back, okay? And so you're asking me, what are some thoughts about how to talk about legitimate complaints, but in a way that doesn't dance into that same dance? Yeah. Interesting. Um, let me think. Are you sure that you're able to ask in a way that doesn't have the aggressive edge? Not in the least bit. Ah, Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, you know, it's, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, occasionally there's times when it's, you know, it, it, there's a certain lack of that self-awareness. Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I'm trying to phrase the question in a way that's, you know, super nice and caring and loving, and it's not coming out that way. Yeah. Well, okay. One of the things I really like about what you're doing is the fifth ability, humility and repentance. He's sitting there going, hey, man, search me and know me. I want to figure out how to not act this way in my marriage. You're close to the kingdom. Okay? All right. Here, let me give you some thoughts on it. Um, one thing is to, 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 uh, to do it as a team. In other words, the fact that you're being humble and repentant, I don't want to be this way, honey, means that what you can do is get her to help you. In other words, what I want to say, and I did this with my wife. I said, like, you know, did you hear the way I just talked to you? That was not okay. And she would be oblivious. And I kind of wanted to teach her to stop me from, help me not be a jerk. And sometimes I think I did too good a job. Um, <laughs> but one thing to say is, here's my deal. Because of, and it might be some fun to do some homework and some detective work. Where did you learn this? That'd be a cool thing to, to, to just learn. Is, you know, this was a style in my family or where did I learn? There's a little edge of anger in there. What's behind that? Anger is a secondary emotion. 
it's the second thing I feel, is usually a way to not feel something vulnerable. Instead of feeling shame or helplessness or sadness, I'll feel anger. So I, would, I, would, I think it'd be cool to spend some time with some people who loved you and knew you to say, why do I have the edge? I wonder what the edge is about, man. Okay, anyway, do that little bit of homework. But also with your wife, I want you to say, look, whatever my reason, and I'm working on that, um, I want you to help me learn. And when you hear the edge, would you just like, we'll have a little sign, okay? I don't want you to trigger and go, oh my gosh, you're doing it again. Okay, that just sets us off. It's interesting that we, we, um, we have that sign for uh, when we're dealing with our kids. Okay, yeah. We have like a code word. Right. You know, if, if one of us is coming across as too harsh, bananas, and we kind of reel it back in. There you go. And you get to use code names. Raising Arizona quote thrown in there, okay? In our marriage, we're using code names. Um, yeah, right. We ain't Ozzy and Harriet. We ain't Ozzy and Harriet. All right. Um, That's a great movie. Yeah, what other lines do you like from that? No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, I want to say, will you help me do this? If you hear me having the edge, call me out. And I also want to give your wife a little bit of work to do in the sense of, um, if she says, ow, God, that felt really mean, I want you to say, ooh, God, okay, thank you. Could you script it for me? What would it be like to ask that in a nice way? How would a nice person ask? And let her sort of teach you. Let her, but also it makes her have some skin in the game. Because instead of just saying you're doing it bad, she's working to teach you to do it good. And y'all are really a team then, okay? Um, do you find yourself having trouble actually setting limits on yourself if you are angry and trying to make yourself not act angrily. Does it ever blow out in ways you can't control? Okay, good. So it's kind of sneaking out. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, if it's sneaking out, then y'all get on the same team and A, learn what's going on with your anger. B, get on the same team of, hey, honey, help me learn, you know, Ozzy and Harriet, use the signs. And, and it's a learning curve. Literally, um, we learn to relate emotionally, characterologically a certain way and, you know, as we're growing up, and we, we don't stop learning. You can keep learning. So engage that part of you again, and I, I think that'll work. I really like your question, though. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Where's the, oh, you have the other mic. Let's, let's use that, that one. Um, I know you didn't want to talk too much about detaching and um, but can you explain, are there certain emotions that are uh, a little more associated with reaction versus detachment? Like certain emotions you might feel and then detach. Detach? Yeah. Um, ask your question again, I'm sorry. So, um, so I feel an emotion and I react. Okay. What emotion would I feel and detach? What emotion would you feel? Yeah, what kind of emotion that would incline you to, to detach? detach? Yes. Ah. I think the thing is, I don't know if I can put my finger on personally. I can't ah. put my finger on what that emotion is I'm feeling when I detach. Ah. Okay. So, uh, if if this gets too personal, stop me. You're saying that something can happen in you. You can observe it taking place in which an emotion comes up for you, and you find yourself pulling away from your husband. Like there's this detachment. Ah. And you're going, I wonder what's going on with me, okay? Hmm. 
And it's hard for you to really know what the feeling is. Have you tried to talk with somebody about it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that hasn't gone anywhere? Uh, A little bit, yeah. What I would guess, and and given the nature of the situation, I don't want to probe here. um, (laughs) But I would say my guess would be the things that make me want to detach are either hurt fear or anger and so is that in a just to to make a bigger picture is that when when people detach are those generally the emotions they're having yeah those are top three okay yeah if that maybe can give you what you have in in your situation is what i call it the office detective work it's like huh okay we got four bullet holes in the wall and five shell casings. Like, where's the other bullet? You know, and we start wondering what could be going on. And what we would do is say, okay, so when you detach, what are, what's going on inside of you? What did you, do you say to yourself? Uh, what did he do that made you detach? And I'm going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. You just used the word so-and-so. That sounded kind of angry. And you'd go, you know, I think I kind of was. And we'd sort of discover it. That's why I think talking with someone and just playing with it, you're going to find that. But um, your question is really cool because you're wanting to get curious about what's motivating your heart and your behavior. You're asking a heart question, which I think is, you know, the, the foundation of life is to ask that question. I don't know more how to a- answer it for you than giving you three possibilities and those thoughts because I don't want to dig deeper. No, that's good. Okay, good. In the back? Is that firefighter girl? Just asking. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to know who firefighter was. I'm Pulp Fiction girl. <laughs> but I had a question in just sort of in general. Oh my gosh, like, it's y'all. I know, hi. Oh. We know you. <laughs> you know us. So my question was, is there anything that you would... It's hard. I've been having a hard time trying to articulate it, but would you have anything in addition to add for couples that maybe have both or one of them on like the autism spectrum or ADHD or stuff that is just sort of their emotional stuff that's on top of everything that's more neurotypical? I don't know if you would, but I was curious if you had thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I think I want to answer that in a broad stroke in the sense of... Um, One of the most fundamental pieces of this talk tonight and of my conference is that um, the worst thing that happened to marriage was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, being alive and being a person and being married, it means that you're going to have to engage lots of problems, right? And sometimes the problems are that I, I withdraw and I don't know why, or that I act like a jerk when my wife talks about Meghan Markle, or <laughs> that I have ADD or some autism glitches like that. The, 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 but what the tree did was on that day, we will surely die, and by golly, we did. Because what it did was it took every problem we have and every issue we have that we should be able to bring to people we love and walk arm in arm and talk to and figure it out and solve together. And it turned it into a way that I'm going to allow 
to judge you with and hurt you with and be angry at you about? And why do you have to be this way? And um, what I would want to do with any kind of an issue that creates pain or difficulty in a marriage is to pull one another closer together and say, the fact that you struggle like this does hurt me. And so I'm reaching for your love. And that person goes, I know that it hurts you. And I can't believe you love me in it. And so the, the, the magic of the gospel. God made up this thing that made it where the ways in which I fail you, the ways in which I fail him, don't draw us further apart. They have the possibility now of making us closer together. He who sins big and is forgiven much loves the best. Okay, so you can talk about a particular problem in your marriage, and I'd say the problem in your marriage is not that problem. The problem in your marriage is that we have been ripped in two by the knowledge of good and evil, and what I want to do more than anything is be angry at you and judge you. And what this conference is about is an alternative way of looking at that. No, we are broken together. Let's learn to grow together, and let's push back on that inclination toward judgment and begin like God does with gospel that says, your brokenness and the ways in which you're hurtful, you come to me with them like the uh, dude, the aggressive dude over there and say, I want to be different, okay? <laughs> to me, that's that, that beautiful miracle where God created my brokenness is going to make us closer now. That's what I would want. That's my goal for all of y'all's marriages more than anything I could put on a keynote slide. That is the enemy. The enemy is that I want to make you bad and not be bad and be loved, <laughs> So this is more of a request than a question. Do you like music? Are you a music guy? Yeah. Okay. So I'm asking you kind of like just do like a jazz solo or something here. Yeah. Uh, so you were talking about the fruit of sadness, kind of the barrenness of anger, I believe, yeah. in a marriage. What's your advice on, I just want to hear you like go on a riff on it. Riff. Um, how you encourage couples to process sadness together. And I just want to hear how you would, if I was like in a session and the advice you would give on sadness and how that can bear its fruit and how to meditate on that and really think through it. So I just like want to sit on the couch and you talk to me about it. Okay. Can you give me a, something we're sad about? Just, you know, either I'm an a-hole or she's an a-hole and um, on any given day that makes me sad or I make them sad or... Uh, life can be sad, your child can have cancer, or fill in the blank. Just I'm talking general sadness and the fruit that comes from that, and also particularly in marriage, how you know sadness, as you were you were mentioning anger, you have you have the choice to be angry, which you can't heal. Yeah, right. And sad, you can heal from. And it sounded like you had more to say there, or you could have a lot more to say. Yeah. And I just want to hear some of what you have to say there. Okay, so I'll tell you a story about me. Okay. Okay. I worked on this a lot in my own therapy. Because I'm an angry jerk, and I didn't want to be. And so I found out that a lot of what was behind my angry jerkness was that um, I really longed to be loved and understood. And when people didn't love and understand me, I got mad and ugly, was ugly to them, which made sure they didn't want to be close to me now. So it was kind of a nasty cycle, right? Um, so I had to figure out what was going on with me about that anger. Now, one of the things I realized was, one of the things I learned was that 
I would want my wife to treat me or love me in a certain way, and she wouldn't, and then I'd get angry at her, okay? And I realized that, I, I started thinking, okay, what would it be like instead if I was just sad? Now, it took me a little while to develop the capacity to be sad because everything in us wants to resist it. It's like giving up. It's like, I'm just going to let her not understand me, and that's going to be okay, and I'm going to go be sad about it, and that's the end of the story. And sadness doesn't look like it has a very happy ending. And so I kind of had to learn to do it. So one day, uh, um, she had done something with the girls that had sort of ended up hurting me, and I, I told her, I said, that kind of felt kind of bad. And she totally went defensive and totally blew me off. Now, at that point, usually I just start up in the volume, man, just cranking it up, like, no, that's not what I'm saying, you know. And, and instead, I thought, okay, John, here's your chance. You are not going to be understood right now. Can you be sad about that? And I shut myself I stopped myself from badgering her. And I have a man cave that's really great. And I said, go to the man cave and be sad. And I went to the man cave. And I had this great therapist in L.A. when I was in school. And he told me once, he read my number way back a long time ago. He said, John, you will never be loved exactly the way you wish. And I'm like, well, that's preposterous. I don't want that, you know. Um, But he nailed me. That's exactly what I wanted, to be loved just the way I wanted to. And I got up there and I heard his voice say that and I started to cry. And I felt this deep, sad longing like I want so much for her just to hear me and, and let what I'm saying matter and she's not and I'm not going to fight her to do that. And I felt alone and sad and hurt and I just sat in it. And the fu- um, Let yourself feel it and don't fight it. In other words, when I was telling you about um, my office manager and the baby, and I started crying a minute ago, there was something in me that goes, John, you're speaking, don't cry. And I'm like, no, I'm going to cry. Let myself have it, okay? The ability to let an emotion come out. Are you asking about that? What does it look like for an emotion to let, let yourself manifest it? Okay, so I was talking to a guy last week. And um, he's probably uh, mid-30s, and his dad was this constant criticizer, shamer, and he lives his whole life second-guessing everything he does. And he wants to buy this thing, and he's found just the right one, and he's about to buy it, and all of a sudden, all these doubts and fears start flooding over him. And I said to him, it is like you can't do anything in your life without hearing your dad's threatening voice saying that it might be the wrong choice, and you're terrified of that. What an incredibly painful, heavy, hard way for you to live. And he started to cry. He started to feel sad for his wound. Get it? Is that another another example? Okay. Help me out. Fine-tune my sacks here. All right. 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 Being weak, being powerless. When I first started learning to feel sadness, I called it happy hopelessness because there was such a relief in giving up and just being sad. I can't have what I want. Now, before you know it, you're living like a creature, which is what God calls holiness. Okay? But you can't live like a creature without being small, and you can't be small without being sad. That's why it's such a holy emotion in Scripture. And it will save your marriage if I can be sad. 
And if you can be sad together, man, like I say, you get to teach the next conference. Chuck? That is you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you too. Can we get him, him the mic? Black Girl's got it on your other side. I think you described our culture as sort of a junior high level culture. Yeah. And I'm wondering the effect on all of us of absorbing a junior high culture and media. Um, and, and maybe a level of absorption that doesn't allow us to do things like be sad or have behavior that's modeled for us that's healthy. Would you recommend kind of removing ourselves a little bit from media to, to accomplish some of these four? Is, uh, do you get the, the question I'm asking? Is there a, a way of immersing yourself in our world today that's counteractive to what you're asking us to do? Hmm. Is Locklear here? Where's Jimmy? Ah, hey. I think you would have a lot to say about this. The way you think talks a lot about kind of reflecting in a different way about culture, in a meditative way, in a self-reflective way in a way that pulls back and really goes inner? I don't know. Uh, talk to him. <laughs> By the way, he helped me get my book on Amazon. So it's like, he's my hero. You're talking about solitude and the, yeah. the value of being alone, be alone, alone with God. So yeah. it's... it's, it's uh, it's life changing, and it's what it's what Jesus did. So yeah. it's it's so making solitude a regular part of your life. How about this? Let's let's bring solitude. Let's bring. How did I answer your question when I didn't know the answer? I went to community. <laughs> I got a body of Christ here, man. There are people who answer this question better than me. Um, in other words, um, one of the things we talked about last night was that our culture has lost the notion of. Um, intimacy and connection. We're this alienated, angry culture. Um, and that alienation, that lack of connection is one of the reasons our culture is getting more and more unhealthy. Our hearts are like plants. And if you take a plant and you put it in a closet, it doesn't get sunlight and water and miracle grow and all that, and it withers. And our hearts are exactly the same way. And the more alienated our culture is, the worse we get inside. Okay? So we need a culture within a culture. Well, this is it. So, yeah, I think solitude, I think being aware of the impact of our culture on us, but I think very much soaking ourselves likewise in this kind of community. I mean, what we're doing tonight is life-giving to me. I hope it's life-giving to you. I mean, and you're sort of soaking in a different vibe of the universe. I'm not a motivational speaker, as you can tell. I'm not like, go, win, lawyers, guns, and money. I'm saying, no, go, lose. Go, lose. Everywhere you can lose, and, and, and then you're going to get loved, all right? It's kind of counterintuitive, and I want us to think counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Who's got the mic? Do you still have the mic? Locklear's got it. Pass it down. What's the differentiation between sadness 
in depression, if you can kind of yeah, elaborate a good on that a little. Um, and it needs to be differentiated. Most people, um, you know, lay people uh, equivocate them. Oh, he's sad and depressed. Actually, that's impossible. Um, depression is kind of by definition uh, what happens if we don't let ourselves feel sad. Um, real sadness is an engagement of my loss. Depression results when I disconnect from my loss. Let me talk to you all about depression for a second. Um, here's the way depression works. Um, I'm in a lot of pain, and it can be chronic pain. Uh, it can be more immediate pain, but I'm having trouble managing it, and I'm not connected to somebody, okay? So it's me, myself, and I hurting inside. Now, the, what, what happens with depression is that that level of pain um, gets bad enough <clears throat> to where something in me flips a breaker switch. Our hearts have a breaker switch, and we can just shut it off, and the emotion will stop. I will stop feeling that pain. Now, the problem is that our hearts aren't like our houses in the sense that they don't have a big breaker box with lots of switches. Your heart only has one breaker. And if you throw the breaker to the pain, you also throw the breaker to everything else in you. And what you resultingly feel then is the deadness and the emptiness and the blankness and the not-aliveness that we call depression. All right? So, people who are depressed are trying to not feel sad or not feel hurt or not feel loss or not feel pain. And they do that by shutting off their breaker. And in doing so, they shut off their soul. And that's what depression is. Now, here's the problem if you're depressed. What are your options? Your options are to cut the breaker back on, which will make you feel all of that pain all over again. And I just got rid of it, thank you very much. I'm not about to do that. Or you just sit in the depression. So they're pretty stuck, which is why you can see people who get depressed can get in real despair sometimes because it's kind of a no way out scenario. It's not going to surprise you what the answer is. And that is, remember what I said earlier? That pain alone is doubled and pain with is halved? Well, what breaks the tie of depression is if you can get connected with somebody and a relationship in which you go back and look at that pain, there's something about having another person there that makes that pain that was intolerable before that required you to blow that breaker switch and enables that pain to be tolerable enough for you to cut the switch back on and the depression lifts and then you start to cry because now you're hurting. But you're not hurting alone, and it's a hurt we can metabolize. So sadness is an actual engagement of my pain through sorrow. Depression happens when I can't engage my pain and I have to cut it off. And we get out of that by somebody walking into the pain with us and walking us out. Does that make sense, pal? Good. Um, I was just going to share an illustration of, from our experience about the suffering issue. And that was, or being sad together, is that when we lost a baby, we experienced a tremendous amount of intimacy. Yes. Emotional intimacy yes. in that pain. And it seemed to be that people either drew really close together and had, and, and, um, and it, I called it the sweet intimacy of grief. There was something there yes. that was 
very deep. Yes. And it seems that marriages, when they get to that kind of pain, either they get really close or they go to depression and don't, don't deal with the pain, and they miss that intimacy of that shared pain. And we find that, too, in our small group, where we share in our small group our pain, and, and then we know each other and we're humble with each other and we're and there's there's such depth there to those friendships because people are vulnerable and they're bringing their pain. Yes. All right, I'm going to ask you put you on the spot. Um, talk to us about what are your thoughts about what needs to exist in a relationship for it to be safe enough to do that. Safe enough in in any kind of relationship? Yeah. In that the small group you're talking about or in your marriage? Well, it's that, that you know you're going to be heard. You're not going to be ridiculed. People are not going to then take that and go, you know, he wasn't going to go talk to somebody else. My wife's crazy. She's, you know, it, it, was, um, it was drawing us closer together because we could be real with each other. And we didn't have to worry about being So ridiculed. a safety, that's right. just a huge word for me. The reason that we live in isolation is not just that we live in an isolated culture. It's because we're scared. And we don't feel safe. Um, well, one of the things that happened when we lost the baby was he had a relative who told him to not go to the hospital. <laughs> just let them knock me out and pretend it never happened. Ah. And, um, and we were appalled. The hospital would have been appalled and would not have behaved that way. Um, but um, it was, you know, but there's a whole lot of people out there that think that's how you deal with life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And why did they come to that, you know, view? Right. The view that living out of an emotional place is not a good place to go. That's pretty rampant. In our intimacy talk tomorrow, we're going to talk about that some. Like some people are just never taught to be connected. Do we have time for one, maybe two more? And I'll get you and then we'll end on you. Okay. I just had a thought on the, the sitting in the sadness. Yeah. And personally, the word to learn, to be learning how to do that was the word permission. Oh, and once I more. was grant, granted myself permission huh. to feel those things and I didn't have to correct it and I could just feel it. So I don't know if that's a helpful defining Can I ask you a question about it? Sure. Um, I don't know if I'll answer it. But. <laughs> <laughs> permission implies something in you is saying that you shouldn't or you can't? Shouldn't. Shouldn't. That was a big shouldn't. Okay, what's the shouldn't? Um, I felt like I needed to be stronger than, or that I could work through it. So once I let myself know, yeah, I, I am allowed to feel this, I have permission to feel this, then I was able to learn to sit in it, and once I was able There you to go, to not have to be it, strong. I didn't have to be strong, and then once I could sit in it, then I could work through it and start the healing and the growing. So I just, I was hearing the conversation between that's the good. two of you, and I don't know if that's a helpful word. It's helpful to me. Um... The irony, the paradox, like everything true in the Bible is paradoxical, to be so strong that you can be weak, to be so strong that you can feel your vulnerability. I'm going to throw out one other thing about sorrow, because feeling sorrow for my own pain, 
a lot of people go, oh, that's just having a pity party and you're feeling sorry for yourself and all that. Let me make a distinction there real quick. Feeling sorrow for my losses and feeling sorry for myself are different things. And, and, and one way to explain that is feeling sorry for myself is technically a misnomer. Um, it's, a, it's an idiom that doesn't accurately describe what's going on. When Eeyore says, don't worry about me, it's just my birthday, happiest day of the year, you know, he's feeling sorry for himself, right? But he's not feeling sorrow. He is angry as all get out. He's saying, piglet, I am so mad at you for forgetting my birthday and I'm going to make you suffer. Feeling sorry for yourself is technically um, passive aggression. Okay, I'm going to passive aggressively punish you and make you feel bad for doing this. Okay, so that's what feeling sorry for yourself is. Some people kind of go, well, is it okay to feel sad or is that just feeling sorry for yourself? No, they're very different things. Um, enough. Yes. You can um, answer this probably tomorrow, but as we talk about sadness and sorrow and grief in marriage, um, and I wanted to say I really appreciate the anger and sadness comment. That's my go-to. It's easier to be angry for things that have happened in our marriage in times of deep, deep sorrow. Yes. So it's easier Are you talking be, about my comment when I was over there? Yes. It's yes. much easier for me to be angry I'd much rather at be my angry husband than, sad. Oh, than yeah. it is to grieve um, the loss of a child that we had. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a go-to. But um, having a marriage that we've deeply worked and done a lot of grieving and a lot of sadness and a lot of, um, like, this is a celebration and a night away to sit in a marriage conference <laughs> um, and work on ourselves. But um, I also appreciate a really good book and things that we can do together. And um, if you could, tomorrow, I'd appreciate any recommendations you have for books that are um, encouragement. Like, once... Once you're working through all these things and you're growing, what are great books or ways that couples can help celebrate the ways um, that they are growing together? Or um, <laughs> I don't no. know if I can. I'm terrible about to... recommending books. There's only one book I actually recommend. But um, I know you haven't. I, I can't wait for it to hear your, you know, to read your marriage book. Um, um, I'm not good at books. Let's find somebody who is in this community. There would be somebody, somebody out there who knows a book about what she's talking about. Yeah, I love marriage books that that can work on these things, but also are encouragement and be like, oh, we're doing it. Good. High five. We're not just (laughs) sitting in the, we've done a lot of the grieving with our, um, we've done a, when you've done a lot of the humility and the repentance. And you still want to grow, but you don't want it to be too heavy. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. But bigger picture, you're talking about your marriage having weathered a brutal attack. Very, very. There and are no words that can fully express it. Exactly. And so I'm trying to imagine what it would sound like and look like. How would I possibly even write a book that would say... Name the worst possible thing you could ever imagine going through and pick this person to walk through it with. And you walk through it with him together. And somehow grief, which I do not understand, works that somehow softening magic that makes the ripping, jagged edge of that loss something that feels softer 
and you realize you've walked through it together and you're progressing. And I don't know a way to speak celebration of that stronger than what I'm doing right now. Than to say to you, please, somehow you've been given each other to walk through the worst thing in the world. And, and your love together is that celebration. But if somebody has a book, jump on it, find her. Thank you for sharing that with oh, us. No, thank you for your time. One of the things that I, um, I feel different churches to be very different. And of course, we're all close. Um, and I, I really value the level of intimacy and vulnerability that you guys have shown tonight in our Q&A. Um, I want us all as a church body to respect that vulnerability with the greatest safety and the greatest respect that this would be a place where you would always feel that safe to bring your heart this culture within um, our culture our culture that is not safe this one is going to be this one is can i close this in prayer father we're talking a lot about safety We're talking a lot about bringing truth. We're talking a lot about humility. And what we're talking about are the things that you gave us. You walked into a world that we destroyed. You walked into a world that we made not safe. We walked, you walked into a world that we made in such a way that if you screw up, you are punished you are hated or scorned. You walked into a world that we ruined. And instead of running away from us, you came to us. And you allowed yourself to be vulnerable and harmed and not safe at all. And you made it to where your own heart took the stripes that we were due. So that now we can sit around here together and talk about the ways in which we're broken and screwed up and need help. And that is safe because you made it safe. Everything we've talked about here tonight is predicated on your gift to us, your broken body for our sake, your blood shed to cover our brokenness. So now we are safe to be a community that are ambassadors for you. We just worship you in that right now. We worship you. We get the best thing in the world because of you. We get you. <laughs> Thank you. Amen.